Turn to Matthew chapter 23. We're going to climb into this in a few minutes. I want to begin with prayer, though. Lord, in these next few minutes, we just want to enjoy you. Pray that you'll speak in spite of me and speak through me. Lord, I pray that we as a people can engage a truth that will change our lives for your glory. Lord, this morning also want to pray for this church that's gathering right next to us, St. Paul's Episcopal. Lord, we pray that as they gather right now and as they are possibly engaging the word even at this very moment or singing in response, singing worship together, Lord, we pray that you are truly being enjoyed. Lord, I pray for the pastor of that church. pray that that pastor has been wrecked by an engagement in the Word, time in the Word that has left him surprised by grace, captivated with Christ. I pray that it has spilled over and continues to spill over onto his family and that that is his primary ministry and that from that there's an overflow onto his people. Lord, we pray that you will guard us from ever having a spirit of competition with another church, another Christ-adoring church in this community. Lord, we pray for this church, St. Paul's Episcopal, that you will stuff that church with people that are enjoying you. Lord, we pray that they'll have seating problems for your glory. Lord, also, given our context of where we are physically this morning, this piece of geography, we want to pray for Greenville Christian School. Lord, we're thankful for um, the ministry that's taken place here of education and journey through the Word, Lord. We pray that you will just guide this people, these teachers, these parents, these students in the journey of faith. Lord, we pray that this school and the ministry of this school bring glory to you in the way that they enjoy you, the way that they speak of you, and that enjoyment will come from the heart. Lord, we also pray in considering Greenville Christian School, we pray for the other schools in this area. Just pray for believers in these settings to be salty and bright and captivated so that we can bring glory to you. Turn this time over to you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hypocrite was a Greek word. It was used in plays and theater. The word hypocrite means to act or play a part. It is to pretend to be something that you are not. Jesus spoke of hypocrites often in the New Testament, but on one specific occasion, he defined them so wonderfully that it's a great place for us to start. He was speaking of the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, and here's what he said of hypocrisy. He said, these guys, they honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. He also said these things of hypocrites, all in chapter 6 of Matthew. You don't need to turn there unless you'd like to. But he's speaking of hypocrites. He said, these guys, they sound a trumpet when they give to the needy. Check me out. Somebody's got a need. I'm going to hook them up by all these other faithful people. I'll take care of them. I got this one covered. They sound a trumpet because they want everybody else to know what they're doing. And they want to gain man's applause. That's hypocrisy. 
They pray in public places so as to be seen by others, so that others will take note of them. Their motive is man's approval and man's applause. Whenever they went without food, it's called fasting. Some of y'all may be familiar with that phrase. These guys would fast. They'd squinch up their face and look all gloomy. And I guess if you could manage to look hungry, I don't know what this looks like because I don't go there very often, but they managed to look hungry because they wanted everybody else to know that they were fasting. And then in chapter 23 of the book of Matthew, Jesus gives probably the most scathing commentary of hypocrisy, of Pharisees, scribes, and Sadducees in our Bibles. That's where we're going today. We're going to read the whole chapter. So you can follow along with me. I'm, in, I'm on page 828 of the ESV, if you have an English Standard Version. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, I just imagine the tone of our Lord being what I would probably describe as piercing gentleness. I just don't ever imagine that Jesus had to spit and stomp and throw things. I just imagine that his words were so incredibly piercing that he probably didn't even have to raise his voice. He says these words first to the crowds and to his disciples in the presence of the Pharisees and scribes. He says the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe what they tell you. In other words, the scribes and Pharisees are teaching the law. They have a place of authority. You need to listen to them, but don't do what they're doing. He says, but don't do what they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. If you remember last week, I mentioned phylacteries. I was preaching last week from Deuteronomy chapter 6. There's a passage in there that's called the Shema. It's a very important passage to the people of Israel, so much so that they've made, they make little boxes and they put this scripture on little pieces of parchment in the boxes and they wear them on their heads or on their sleeve. And when they pray, they make a big production of having those things, potentially. These guys, these Pharisees, they're such hypocrites that they make really big, wide phylacteries. It would be like the Christian carrying the biggest, baddest, most spectacular Bible that he possibly could carry. Well, I'm heading off to worship this morning, baby. Can you help me with my Bible? A lot of effort to go to just to show you what it would have looked like. But their phylacteries were wide. And their tassels were things that they wore on their sleeves. God told the nation of Israel, put tassels on your sleeves because you're to be set apart. You're to be different. And they were prayer tassels. And these guys had especially long ones. Be like having a big old fish sticker on your car. The biggest that you could get. That's what these guys were doing. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Really what they loved is they loved the perks. I'm enjoying the perks of this Pharisee position. It says, but you are not to be called rabbi. 
For you have one teacher, and you all are brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant, unlike these guys. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now he's been talking to the crowds and to the disciples. And now he turns to the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. And he starts speaking to them. He issues seven woes. Hearing our Lord say woe to you seven times would give you, hopefully, occasion to quake. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And he calls them hypocrites, the first of six times. He says, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. These guys were even soul winners traveling as far as they needed to go to get new converts. He says, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. This is what I'm calling a treehouse ethic. Any of you ever been in a, spent some time in a treehouse? You know what I'm talking about. Where you got those little special rules that make you kind of part of the club. Like you can't use any words to start with R. Or you booted out of the club. You can't step on a crack because you'll break your mama's back sort of rules. They really don't mean anything, but you're just commanding your little domain. That's what these guys are doing here, little made-up rules. If you swear by the gold of the temple, he's bound in his oath, but not if you swear by the temple. He says, you blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that, is made, or the, that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. Quit being so ridiculous. Whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. Whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. This was an agrarian society. This is a place in time when people... They would even tithe produce. They may not have a bunch of money, but they'd have a bunch of tomatoes, potentially. I don't know what, olives. They'd show up and tithe their produce. These guys were so particular that they're even tithing their spices. I mean, produce is a given in this picture. These guys are observing the letter of the law, and they're even making some new law. I'm going to make sure I got my mint, my dill, and my cumin in there. But they've missed justice and mercy and faithfulness. You guys are majoring on the minors is what they're saying. He's saying here, he says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. He says, you blind guide, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. I found that the Pharisees, 
if we would have been disciples here in this context, understanding the context, we would have been snickering at what he just said. <laughs> That's funny, Jesus. You crazy. Because what it, the, the Pharisees had these rules. If, if a bug landed in your drink or your soup, and it was larger than a certain size, if it was larger than a lentil, a lentil is like smaller than a piece of grain of rice. But if it's larger than a lentil and he dies in the drink or the soup, then the whole bowl or the whole cup is rendered impure and you've got to pour it out. But if he's smaller than a lentil, like a gnat, ah, he's okay. You can drink him down. And he's saying right here, you guys are focused on the wrong things. You're not bothering about, or you're bothering about a gnat when really what you're drinking is the camel. The biggest thing you could possibly drink. The biggest critter that they had in their context. A camel. You're majoring on the gnats when you ought to be majoring on the camels. He says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees. You hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets." Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. These guys, the model for hypocrisy. These Pharisees, they win souls. They'll travel as far as they need to to win souls and to gain proselytes. They tithe, even their spices. They teach. They sit in Moses' seat. So they must spend a lot of time in the law and in the Word and their teachers. And they look good on the outside. Boy, they are clean and sparkly and righteous on the outside. And they even honor the righteous by building nice tombs and memorials to those righteous. Yet, yet, the inside doesn't reconcile with the outside. Doesn't matter what it looks like on the outside, the inside does not reconcile. And by their ways, by this discrepancy between the outside and the inside, effectually, essentially, what has happened here in verse 10, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Through their hypocrisy, they actually stand as obstacles to the kingdom of God. They're not ushering in the kingdom of God. They stand in the way. 
The kingdom of God might be unfamiliar to you. Here's a definition for you, kingdom of God. Kingdom of God is the rule of God in the hearts of men. And by these guys' lives, not reconciling the inside and the outside, they stand in the way of the rule of God in the hearts of men. And they shut the door to the kingdom. Jesus gives us a couple of really, really cool, easy-to-visualize illustrations here as he describes these guys. He says, you're like a cup or a plate that's dirty on the inside but looks clean on the outside. I bet some of you guys at L3, especially kind of the, con- the grouping of former military guys you have out there at L3, I bet you've seen something like this before. When I served in act- on active duty in the Marine Corps, I had these guys that worked for me, these st- senior staff NCOs, first sergeants, staff sergeants, gunnery sergeants, master sergeants. These guys have been in the Marine Corps 15, 18, 20 years, and they all had these cool coffee mugs that had been awarded to them at some point for some special occasion. They had this high-speed eagle globe and anchor on the outside. Man, this thing looked bad to the bone. But then you'd look inside and you would see things that you'd never seen before. And they would claim that it's seasoning. Say, hey, first sergeant, why don't you clean your mug? Oh, no, it's seasoned. It's seasoned. It's just right. There were things growing in those coffee mugs that cold, black, steaming, hot, Sumatra, Starbucks coffee couldn't kill. And that's the picture here. The mug, the cup, the plate looks great on the outside, but on the inside, it's dirty. He also says, you're like whitewashed tombs, beautiful and freshly painted on the outside, but inside dwell death and stench and decay. I want to think about and try and come up with a picture of my version of what a whitewashed tomb would be, or my version of the dirty cup. And in 2008, I'm actually off sweets this year. I just, I, I love sweets. It's one of those things I'm just kind of fasting from this year. I'm not being legalistic about it. not saying that you should do that. It's just for me. But I'm still thinking about sweets a lot, especially lately. Going over to people's house and they have dessert and seeing that big thing, big piece of cake out there. So here's my illustration having to do with sweets. Have you ever gotten this little box of chocolate candies? I hope you've gotten one at least from your mama at Valentine's. I hope you've gotten one of those things shaped like a heart. You open that bad boy up. And then you identify which one you want to start on first. And if you're like me, you're looking for the one that looks like it has a nut in it. I mean, I want something with an almond in there. I want something with a peanut or a pecan. That wouldn't be a pecan. See, I know my chocolates, and they wouldn't have a pecan in those heart-shaped ones. But I want something that's got some nougat in it. You know what I'm saying? Nougat is like an onomatopoeia. An onomatopoeia is like buzz. Or uh, oink, it's a word that sounds like what it is. Nougat just sounds like what it is. That stuff that makes a Snickers bar so good. I want to find that chocolate that has some nougat in it. But without fail, man, I'm looking and I say, oh, that's it. That's got a nut in there. And I dive into that bad boy and I take a bite out of it. And it's got that orange or pink cream inside that nobody knows what it is. It, I, we're calling hazardous material teams to come try and figure out what it is and get it, get it taken care of. It doesn't even taste. It's like flavored air. Orange or pink. 
That's what this is. It doesn't reconcile with the inside. The outside looks like, man, there's nougat in there. But you eat that bad boy or you take a bite. Come to find out it doesn't reconcile. That was what the case was with these guys. I thought as I prepared this sermon that probably up to this point there's the potential to dismiss these guys. Aren't they easy to dismiss, these Pharisees? If you're like me, I, I want you to know I've set you up. If you're like me, then you're potentially sitting here right now this morning going, man, those jokers. God, those Pharisees are a bunch of buffoons. Bunch of goofballs. Man, they sure are easy to dismiss. Can't you just see them getting chumped by Christ in this chapter? Can't you just hear the disciples going, oh, man, he's beating them to death. He is making them look like fools. Their mouths are ajar. I don't know if the Pharisees wore the big hats, but I know a lot of the Sadducees wore the big hats. You can see them with their big hats, with their mouth ajar, with their faces kind of flush red, and, and steam coming out of their ears, standing there looking like a bunch of buffoons. Those guys are easy to dismiss. It's sort of like a caricature, sort of like a cartoon. And that's the problem is the Christian faith oftentimes dismisses these guys as the other guys. And we miss the point, the whole teaching of Christ, potentially. This is not a those guys thing. It's potentially an us guys thing. For hypocrisy is part of human nature. It comes with the package. It's the natural thing for us to be more concerned about what others think than about the inside. To be more concerned about the outside and the performance and the activity. And if we look good or whether we are good. I can't tell you how many times I heard people joking about getting a new coat or some new shoes. and I've joked about it too. Yeah, man, 90% of being good is looking good. That's human nature. So I dare not dismiss these guys. I beg you not to dismiss these guys. I want to show you a couple reasons why this may be our story. Here's the first one. Look at verse 29 and 30. I didn't spend a lot of time there, but it's one of the things that Christ leveled at the scribes and Pharisees. He called them hypocrites, and then he says, For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. So in other words, they're thinking back to the prophets and to the faithful kings, and they're building these monuments and recollecting what great times there were. And coupled with that is this thought, if we would lived during that time, we wouldn't have killed those guys. We wouldn't have killed those guys like our fathers did because we would have been different. And there's the potential for us to do the very same thing 2,000 years later while we look at the Pharisees and go, we would have been different. We wouldn't have been like those jokers. We could do the very same thing that they're doing right here. And now I'm going to make it even more personal. Look at the beginning of chapter 24. You just heard the majority of chapter 23. You got a taste for the tone. You heard the whole thing, but listen what happens in chapter 24, just the first two verses. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. And over in Mark, you don't need to turn there. This is just kind of a, a parallel version of the same account. It says, as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Isn't that nice? What I realized as I read that, as I wanted to understand the context of the whole 
chapter 23 is I realized that we can be just like these disciples. These guys had a leg up on us. They walked with Christ for three years firsthand. They heard his sermons firsthand in context. They don't have the barrier and the obstacle of 2,000 years. They spent every minute of every day with him for three years. They saw him walk on water. They saw him raise the dead. They saw him heal the blind. They heard his every sermon. They saw it all firsthand. And they walk out of this building proving they even saw him chump the Pharisees. And they walk out of this building proving that they didn't get it. They walk out of that temple that day marveling at Herod's temple. That's what they called it. Herod's temple. This thing would have been like the eighth wonder of the world. This thing was incredible. The stones on the outside of Herod's temple had gold, like gold leaf on the outside of them. The upper stones were made of white marble. This thing was spectacular. Herod spent 50 or 60 years building this thing. The whole topography of Jerusalem changed for this temple. It was an incredible architectural feat. So the natural man might be prone to doing exactly what the disciples did here, marveling at the structure. But I can't help but wonder, after they walked out of that building and they're saying, oh, look at these marvelous stones, Jesus. Isn't this something else? Isn't the outside of this cup pretty incredible? Isn't this whitewashed tomb pretty awesome? I just can't help but wonder if Jesus wasn't sitting there thinking, man, am I on candid camera? Is Alan Font going to come out here in a minute and tell me to smile? Are you guys listening? Did you hear a whole chapter's worth of a beating that the Pharisees got about being focused on the outside? And here, you guys are doing the same thing. You've walked with me for three years. You saw me walk on the water. You saw me heal the blind. You saw me raise the dead. You heard the beating I just gave the Pharisees, and yet you missed it. He says, you see all these? Do you not? All these stones and this incredible temple that you're marveling at? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Just days before, Jesus had cleared this very temple. He cleared out the pink and the orange. Get out of here, money changers. This is a house of prayer. Just days before, Hours after he cleared the temple, he walks up to a fig tree. This got, got these leaves, it's flourishing, looks like a beautiful fig tree, like it's going to have some promise, like he, Jesus is going to get some figs off this fig tree. And he comes up to this fig tree, looks around, no figs. He says, I curse you, fig tree, you will never bear fruit again. Jesus wasn't impressed with the leaves. He wasn't impressed with the stone. He's not impressed with the outside of the cup. He's not impressed with the outside of the tomb. It seems that he cares about the nougat. I won't let us dismiss the Pharisee as a chump. I won't let us dismiss this chapter as talking about other people. Because these guys, you've got to realize they were the cream of the crop. In their context, in their setting, they were the most committed, the most respectable, the most admirable people in their society. They were like physical, walking, breathing versions of Herod's temple. They were impressive. 
But the faith of this people, hear this statement. The faith of this people, the practice of their temple worship, the leadership of these scribes and Pharisees had become what one guy described as, listen to this, one massive irrelevance. It had become one massive irrelevance. Beautiful on the outside, but with no substance, no figs. You might be wondering, if you've been here the last few weeks, or if you've heard other people talking about, we're in the middle of what's called a dib series, where we're trying to encourage shepherds. We're trying to engage the family. We're trying to figure out how the church and the family intermesh. We're trying to equip shepherds to be shepherds that are engaging their families between Sundays. So you might be wondering, man, what does this have to do with the dib series? How does it really connect to the family? How does it really connect to the church? It connects to the church and the family because hypocrisy makes the church and the family one massive irrelevance. It has everything to do with us. It's possible to have big smiles in high church on Sunday. It's possible to have strong handshakes and those cool sideways Sunday hugs. It's possible to have solid offerings and four-part harmony that would make the angels jealous and yet have no true engagement or even concern for the people of God until next Sunday at 1045. That's pink on the inside. It's possible that I and my preaching could offer to you something that has not invaded my family and my life. It's possible that I could be boisterous and that we could get a bunch of hearty amens and yet we could leave here completely unchanged with no dialogue, no digging, no conversation, no raging for the truth between Sundays. Orange on the inside. It's possible families, to have tidy, sin-managed lives and homes that are completely void of adoration of Christ. It's possible to have homes full of Pharisees that look shiny, that are conflict-free, but yet are completely void of adoration, completely void of humility, completely void of surprise and shock that grace could reach so low. These homes can be full of kids with clean noses and nice parts. They can say, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, and yet have no affection for our Lord whatsoever. These kids can be dark and empty with their clean noses. They can be dark and empty and hollow and wicked and orange and pink on the inside. Let me speak to marriages. It's possible to have men that profess to be believers, men that engage the church regularly. It's possible to have men who provide for their wives and yet are not passionate for their wives. 
It's possible to have men who bring home the bacon, who fix things around the house, who watch football and help the kids get down, but do not love their wives as Christ loved the church. It's possible. I think we, many of us know that. My question is, where's the nougat? Have we or could we potentially be one massive irrelevance? For fear of putting on such a sweet show on Sunday, are we potentially not genuine and real? I think the parent and the pastor, speaking to elders too, speaking to myself, speaking to every parent in here or grandparent, we must understand the Lord's aiming point. He said it in this chapter in verse 26. This is the key to the whole chapter for us. If we want to say, what do we do with this? This is the key. He's speaking of the cup and the plate. He says, clean the inside of the cup that the outside may also be clean. We as parents, as teachers, as pastors, all of us fill in these various roles, we've got to learn to teach and aim to the inside of the cup. That's got to be our focus is the nougat. We've got to learn to shepherd the heart and not the hand. It's easy to shepherd the hand. God's people are called to shepherd the heart and aim for the inside of the cup. I've got two scenarios for you. Scenarios are cool because you're able to kind of visualize what I'm talking about. The first scenario is a church scenario. Since this has to do completely so that the, the family and the church are not one massive irrelevance, so that we engage the church and the family, there's a scenario for each of us. The first scenario has to do with the church. There's a church out there. This happens a lot. There's a church out there. It's a fictional church I'm making up. I'm not speaking of anyone in particular. That's experiencing problems with attendance in corporate worship. Families are more and more sporadic and inconsistent. They're traveling more, engaging the body less. And the pastor, elders, if it's plural leadership as our Bible teaches, are burdened about it. Okay? Problem, burden that reconciles. That's good. Two courses of action for that pastor slash elders. Here's the first course, which is teaching to the hand. Here's the first course that's teaching to the outside of the cup. Listen to what happens. This pastor may get louder and louder and louder from the pulpit. He may stomp and spit at the ones who are attending, which is the irony. Stomp and and spit at the ones who are attending. He may have the guts to face some of the family leaders, but here's the content of his message. Listen to the substance of his message. It's real brief. As he's speaking maybe to a family leader, he says, uh, Gary, now this is not Gary Carroll. This is a fictional Gary. Not you. Gary always raises, you talking about me? This is Greenville Gary. Gary, 
We sure missed you the last few weeks. Gary, sure would be good to have you back in church. That's the content of it. And I'm going to tell you right now, I'm glad that fictional pastor engaged fictional Gary, but that's not shepherding the heart. That's shepherding the hand. That's shepherding the attendance. I know what that looks like because I've done that. I know what that feels like. I know how much courage it takes for fictional pastor to engage fictional Gary, even in something as simple as that. It's not easy. But he hasn't shepherded the heart. And he hasn't aimed for the nougat. Here's what it looks like for fictional pastor and fictional Gary if he were to shepherd the heart, where he aims for the inside of the cup. It would look something like this. Gary, I've missed you and your family these last few weeks. I want you to know, Gary, that this church family dines on something that you need. This church family is on a journey that involves eating together and being nourished together in the Word week by week. Please know, Gary, I'm not talking about church attendance or Sunday rolls. I'm talking about attending to the church. Attending to being equipped for glory, bro. That's what I'm talking about. And I'm sharing that with you because I love you. Gary, Hebrews chapter 10 says this. You got your Bible? I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to fictional Gary. If you want to turn, you can. But I'm talking to fictional Gary right now. Fictional Gary's got his Bible. I'm being facetious. It's probably more normal. He's got his Bible. Say, hey man, turn to Hebrews 10. Let me show you something. This is awesome. Gary, it says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Gary, I want you to know that's what I'm doing with you right now. I want to encourage you because this matters. I want to encourage you to be faithful to engage the people of God. The blood of Christ is too sweet to neglect His people. That's shepherding the heart. Same scenario. Same Pastor X. Same Greenville Gary X. Two different outcomes. In the second case, he knows he's loved. In the first case, he just knows he's missed. And he may show up just so he doesn't get a beat in front of Pastor next time. In the second case, he knows that then we're part on the journey. We're a people who are engaging something week by week. It's not about attendance. It's about attending to the people and attending to the truth. And being equipped for glory. Second scenario has to do with the home. Little boy, little fictional boy called John Boy. This has never happened in my home. Never. Ever. Little boy named John Boy, you asked him if he brushed his teeth at bedtime, and he says, Sure, Dad. But you think about it, you know, you take it at face value, you trust him, but then you think about it, you go, Yeah, I didn't hear the water run. I didn't hear the brush of brushing. I didn't hear any of the sounds that are usually associated with brushing your teeth. So you check his toothbrush, and sure enough, it's dry as the Sahara Desert. So here's daddy number one, or daddy response number one. Daddy can shepherd to the hand. He can focus on the outside of the cup. What I'm going to call it, what another guy called it in a book, it's called uh, Shepherding a Child's Heart. The author of it is a guy named Ted Tripp. I encourage, I recommend the book. He called it John Wayne Parenting. That's so good. 
I, re- I recognize it because that's how I parented most of our children's lives so far. John Wayne parenting. That's what you do when you shepherd to the hand. Here's what it looks like. Come here, boy. Get in here right now. Feel that toothbrush. Here, feel it. Feel it. It's dry as a bone, isn't it? Look here, John, boy. I was born at night, but I wasn't born last night. Carry you and your narrow behind down to my bedroom and grab my paddle because you're about to get yours. Okay, John Wayne, dad, goes downstairs. He grabs a paddle. Don't you ever lie to me again, John boy. Now get up to bed. Oh, go brush your teeth first. That's John Wayne parenting. I know what it looks like because I'm the chief at it. But now here's shepherding the heart. That's shepherding the hand. Shepherding the heart looks something like this. This is new for me. This is new in our home. And it's incredible to see it. Go something like this. John, come here, please. Your toothbrush is dry. How could you have brushed, John? Do you need to tell me something? Do you need to confess to something? Did you lie to me, son? Okay. Let's go down to my bedroom, John. I meet John down there. Hey, John, come here. I want you to sit in my lap for a minute. I want to talk to you. I want you to know that I'm about to spank you, John. But I want you to understand why. John, Jesus referred to Satan as the father of lies. Is Satan our father? Hopefully he says, no, sir. No, he's not our father. Who's our father? God is our father. And God is true And God is the Father of lights in whom there's no shifting shadow, John. So His people do not lie or live in shadow, but rather we tell the truth even if it hurts. Because that's who we are, John. Now stand up and bend over. I believe in corporal punishment if you hadn't figured that out. I think there's a direct neural pathway between the behind and the heart. It's not your only tool, but it's a good, useful tool. And in this occasion, if this were my boy, that's where we'd be right now. Now, John boy, come here, let me hold you. I know it hurts. I know it hurts. John boy, let's pray together. So I put my arms around my boy John and I ask, I say, Lord, please forgive us for our sins. Lord, please forgive us where we fail you. Lord, please, by the blood of Jesus, forgive us and please us, or and please, by your grace and mercy, help us, Daddy and John, to not sin against you again. Lord, we confess that we need the blood of Jesus to not sin against you. And we cast ourselves, me and John, together at the foot of the cross. Folks, I'm going to tell you that's teaching and shepherding to the inside of the cup. That's shepherding to the nougat. 
In the first case, daddy's mad because daddy's been wronged. And first, first case, John Wayne daddy is going to make sure it doesn't happen again. And you know what? That doesn't work. It may work for a little while. It may stifle it a little bit. But who's to say that little John is not going to lie to someone else? Maybe he just stops lying to you knowing that he's going to get a beating. We haven't shepherded the heart. We've shepherded the hand. In the second case, who's been wronged in that case? Not daddy. God has been wronged. And I'm your teammate, your servant father, sitting with you with the charge to discipline you in the journey of faith, to teach you about the things of righteousness. And I care about your heart. And I need Jesus just as much as you do, so let's pray together right after I spank you. Who's been wronged in the second case? God has been wronged. In the second case, Daddy spoke to the nougat. I want to tell you, teaching and preaching and pastoring and parenting to the heart is hard, it's inefficient, it's not uniform, it'll be different case by case. Every situation is different. You can't build a standard operating procedure for how it will work because it's different every time. And it also requires that you engage this book. Some of the things that you heard daddy in the second scenario share with son or some of the things that you heard pastor in the second scenario share with Greenville Gary were things that were had to do with the word. It's the word that changes lives. That's what t- shepherds the heart. So daddies, if you want to raise your children and you want to shepherd their heart, not their hand, you've got to get to know this book. And I'll tell you something else. It's not efficient. It's different case by case. And you need other shepherds to do it. There'll be times where you call me or you email me. Hey, look, here's what my son did. I need some help in going to the Word. Where is the truth on this matter? Where's the life-changing truth that I can engage in the heart of this child? I need your help. We need each other to shepherd the heart. I need the other elders to shepherd this people. We need each other to shepherd you. You can't do it alone. It's inefficient. It's hard. And you need help. But we've got to be about it. It's Christ's priority. The nougat. It's not something that we're conjuring up. It matters to Christ the inside of the cup. And if we don't do this, then what do we find? We find ourselves a massive irrelevance. We are called to deal with the matters of the heart. I'm convinced that's where proper biblical fear and trembling comes from. Because it's when you're dealing with the matters of the heart that you see the darkness of your own heart and you see those dry, dead, decaying bones. You see those things inside the cup that you go, ooh, what is that? That doesn't reconcile with my lips and you're broken and you have a fear and trembling that's healthy. It's in dealing with the heart that we plead as parents, as pastors, with our children, with our people, at the foot of the cross for grace and mercy to change and grow. It's so cross-exalting. It's so Christ-lifting. It's shepherding to the heart. It's hard, but it's right. 
We are to plead with our children Godward for salvation, for forgiveness, and for a reckoning of our lives with our lips and of our hearts with our hands for the glory of God. Let me pray. You know what? I'm going to share something with you before I pray. I got permission from my son to do this. Where is he? Where's Luke? Okay. Yesterday we had derby car racing for scouts. I spent Friday with Luke working on the derby car. We built this cool little derby car, this F, Toyota FJ. You've seen the FJ? Man, that's a bad truck. And this derby car was like an FJ. We even put a lift on it. Talking about some serious time and attention went to this. We built this derby car and had high hopes for it. I told Luke, though, I said, you know what? This thing is kind of like my old Land Cruiser. It's not going to be the first one to get there, but it will get there. It's capable. This derby car may not win, but it's going to look bad in the effort. And Luke was on board. In fact, we walked out of the house, and I said, you know, if we win, that's just gravy. And we walked out of the house, and Luke said, yeah, we've already had our turkey. (laughs) Eight-year-old, I said, man, that boy is listening. That boy is listening. Well, I was off here at GCS out Put dis- distributing cards for our worship at 10 a.m. when it started. So I was late getting over there. By the time I got there, I found that the FJ didn't fare that well. It had been second in three races, the second of three, and it didn't go on to the finals, and Luke was really, really brokenhearted about it. He had his hopes up about it, and he was crying, and it was a little bit, more than a little bit of a scene. And I want you to know I'm speaking to the other shepherds here. I didn't know how to handle it. Man, John Wayne parenting came this close to kicking in. And in fact, it may have kicked in a little bit. Because I got mad at Luke. I was embarrassed for our witness. I was like, man, they're looking at us going, That's, hey, those guys are from Crosspoint. Those guys are Christians and they're not being a good sport. And I was upset. I didn't throw a big fit, but it was probably enough of a scene for people knew that things weren't right. Well, I drove Luke home with the other kids. Christy had to, or actually I drove him out to the bench's house to drop uh, the kids off. Christy and I had to go to a meeting. And um, on the way, and thankfully, for Luke's case, I was preparing this message. (laughs) Woo, thankfully for Luke's case. I was preparing the message, and I was just racking my brain. What am I supposed to do about this? Christy and I were talking. We were like, we're, the meeting we went to was to talk about, it was with CPS, to check into being foster parents. And in fact, we turned to each other. We're like, and we're at the derby race when we turned to each other. How could we possibly be foster parents? We can't even keep our own kids in line. We were exasperated. But I drove uh, the kids to the benches. And Luke was still crying. Turned out his car won best design. But we couldn't stick around for the award because we had already gotten to the point where we decided we needed to leave. We had to go to this meeting. So on top of kind of being poor sports, we even looked like we were poor sports because we had to leave early. 
So then there's the heartbreak of knowing that we didn't get the award that we would have gotten to. So it was really one of those catastrophic days. But I told Luke, I didn't know what to do. I said, Luke, I want to shepherd your heart, but I don't know how to do it in this case. We're going to talk more about it later. Between now and then, I'm going to pray. I'm going to put aside what people think of me. I'm going to focus on the nougat of this family. I'm going to focus on the nougat of this son and the nougat of our true witness. I'm going to do everything I can to shepherd your heart. And last night, we talked for 20 minutes or so before bedtime. We talked again this morning. He gave me permission to share this with y'all. That will hopefully be an encouragement that nobody in this body has arrived. That we're all just fumbling along trying to figure this thing out of what it means to shepherd a child's heart. There are no experts in this. And what it makes is a whole people that are kneeling at the foot of the cross saying, Lord, help us. Help us shepherd our children to bring glory to you so that we will never be a massive irrelevance. I appreciate my son letting me share that with y'all. We're on a journey together. Let's pray. Lord, we are so humbled. We're so humbled by engaging a chapter like this as we really consider that we may be more hypocritical in ways than we realize, that we may be at times more concerned with the outside than the inside. Lord, we want so desperately to pursue holiness from the inside out. We want to be a people that are not irrelevant, but a people that are salty and bright because we are authentic, because we are genuine, because we are on this very real and raw journey together, and that in that journey that you are glorified because you are changing us and growing us. Lord, may we be that people. Not raw for the sake of raw, but genuine and authentic on a true journey. So the people will see us and know that our God is true. And know that this gospel changes lives a day at a time. A scenario at a time. Or teach us to be inefficient. Teach us to not be uniform. Teach us to seek your face in every discipling occasion in every shepherding occasion teach us to be obedient bring you glory the way that we should we thank you for the finished work of christ this morning as we continue in worship it's at that cross that we kneel in christ's name we pray amen let's worship